there are a lot of, of shows like this, right? There's a lot of survival shows in Alaska. There's a ton of Alaska shows right now. I don't know what that's about. But I really like this one. What's compelling about it is that it chronicles the journey of six families, principally this man pictured here named Heimo Korth. He's of German descent. He's actually a son of German immigrants during World War II. And he set out very early in his life to the Alaskan bush, to one of the most remote and northern parts of Alaska. And he and six families in that area of Alaska have the last seven cabin permits in the, Na in the Alaska National Wild Wildlife Refuge. And so, in other words, when their children die, those, there will be no human beings living in that portion, a portion of Alaska about the size of South Carolina. So it's a fascinating uh, sort of chronicle of the events of their life. It's, it's shot really, really beautifully, but it's also super intimate, they, including covering loss of life and some of the great challenges. But in the spirit of all those kinds of shows, there's that thread that kind of weaves it together uh, of sort of this idea that's very human and I think very American, right? It's this sense of, I'm going to take myself and or my family and plant myself in the most hostile, remote place, and I'm going to carve out an existence for myself, and I'm going to uh, sort of uh, uh, overcome the obstacles of, of the terrain and the creation around me, but also at the same time live in harmony with it as well. Again, a very American ideal, but also a very human thing. Now, on the, on the one hand, it's, it's a really positive thing. The scriptures teach us that humanity was the pinnacle of God's creation, that God has created us as image bearers, as, as he is, as God, as, a, as creators and cultivators and protectors. And so we see that sort of redeeming side of this in shows like The Last Alaskans. But we are also a corrupted creation. And so there's this also sinful, prideful self-sufficiency that I'm going to do this, and here's the key phrase, by myself. I don't need anybody else. I can figure out a way to survive and even thrive on my own. I certainly don't need God. And you kind of see both of those things represented in shows like this. It echoes something that's deep within us. You know, sinful self-sufficiency can really manifest itself in a few ways. Maybe you have some real struggles. Maybe there's addiction in your life. Maybe there's a nagging sinful habit and you have this sort of isolating, withdrawing from community mindset that I'm going to beat this by myself. I'm going to overcome it through hard work and willpower. I don't need anybody. I can do it. That's just as much as sinful self-sufficiency as someone who asserts themselves and is extremely industrious, what we even consider successful. And the essence of that idea of prideful, sinful self-sufficiency on sort of the negative side and the positive side is a lot of what we're going to see addressed this morning in what we're looking at in Mary's Magnificat. Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song, Magnificat comes from the Latin for the term to glorify or magnify. And if I was a youth pastor again this morning, I would tell you that we are all about to get schooled by a middle school girl in who God is and in our understanding of uh, biblical theology. So we've looked this, uh, in this series, if you're new with us, if this is your first Sunday, either joining us online or here in the building, this is actually the, the fourth in a series. We've looked at the hope of Advent, the peace of Advent, and the joy of Advent. This morning, we're focused on the love of Advent in this amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. Well, I want to, before we read the actual passage, I want to talk a little bit about who is Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. Now, some of what we know about Mary is sort of speculative based on uh, young women in the culture of the time. Right? We know that Mary was young. We know that she was a peasant from a sort of a nothing town. Uh, we know that she didn't have social status. Uh, matter of fact, Mary is likely between the ages of 13 and 19, probably in the middle of that. 
and she's betrothed to a man who may be as old as his early 40s, perhaps a little younger. We don't exactly know. One of the things that was fun about preparing for this message is I listened to two sermons uh, from way back when. One was by our former senior pastor, Bob McCoy, from as near as I can tell, about 1982 or 83. The other was a, a sermon by our former executive pastor, Frank Vitale, from about 2006. At the time, he had teenage daughters, and he said, I can only imagine if my 14-year-old came home one day and said, Dad, I'm engaged, and he's 38. <laughs> what the reaction and the response would be, given that context. But, you know, betrothal, let me take a little bit of an of a, of a, uh, off-ramp here, a tangent this morning. Betrothal in the first century Jewish culture has hugely significant roots uh, uh, for us. You see, betrothal was essentially, the reason we're not using the word engagement here, is betrothal was, in every sense of, of uh, the definition of marriage, it was marriage with the exception of physical sexual union. And so it was legal marriage. They were bound to be together until the wedding feast when at, after that point they would consummate the relationship. And the betrothal period was to be used by the husband-to-be to, be, to uh, leave his father and mother's house, to go either on the family property or somewhere in the village, and begin to build and construct a home where a new family within the community, community could be rooted and become, uh, find a place of stability and security and ultimately flourish with new life. And that's what would be done during the betrothal period. I think the, the movie, The Nativity Story, if you've seen it, captures this really well. It's throughout the movie, Joseph is, is building this home. You know, this has profound implications for you and me this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, when we hear Jesus' words in John's gospel, when he says, I go away to prepare a place for you, that I may come again and bring you to be where I am. Jesus is using language, and ultimately marriage is pointing us toward what God is going to do through Christ, Christ who is the bridegroom, we the church who is his bride. But it's, just not, it's not just limited to the Gospels and Jesus' uh, sort of eschatological end times picture there of us being with him. It's also in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul teaches extensively on husbands and wives. And at the end of this passage, teaching on biblical marriage, Paul gets to the end, what does he say? He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ in the church. Marriage has profound implications. In Revelation at the consummation of all things, when God redeems his people in the, in the fullest sense of the word, when he brings them to be with him, John the apostle uses the language of the wedding supper of the Lamb as the consummating event when all that happens. By the way, this is why Christians are so insistent on the biblical doctrine of marriage, of one woman and one man for life, because marriage is not just about human relationships and interactions. It, has these, it is illustrative. It has these huge implications for eternal and heavenly realities that we would know God more. So Mary's betrothed. She's betrothed to a man. And they're moving toward this marriage, and she gets this announcement. Now, Bob McCoy, in his message, he talked about several of the paradoxical circumstances of, of Mary's life and bringing Jesus into the world. I want to just hit two of them real quick uh, before we move on from Mary. Number one, Jesus is born into a, essentially a paradox of time. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's as if Jesus both arrives too late and too early at the same time. He's too late in the sense that God's people Israel are yet oppressed again, but this time over the greatest power that the world has known to this point in the empire of Rome that has stripped them of much of their cultural national identities and their traditions. 
They're an oppressed people. Mary is an oppressed young woman. Jesus, it seems that the Messiah comes too late. But certainly from Mary's point of view, who's not even married yet, it seems as if Jesus comes too early, and it introduces a level of scandal into this relationship as she's pregnant before she's married. Jesus is also born into a paradox of status. Jesus is born under the will or subjection, as it were, of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavius. And, and Jesus is a subject of the empire as he is born. And yet at the very same time, Jesus is also born under the will of God the Father. God the Father who orchestrated the events of human history, as Daniel tells us, raising up powers that be, in this case Octavius, who happens to decree a census in the entire Roman world that sees Mary and Joseph, because of Joseph's lineal descendancy, having to return to Bethlehem that the baby Jesus is born in the very place that's been prophesied since before Caesar was even born. There are paradoxes of time and status to Jesus' birth. And so Jesus comes through the announcement that Todd spoke of to this young woman. We're going to see this morning that Mary is a woman of tremendous character, tremendous humble character, that she's a, woman of, a young woman of keen intellect and quick memory as she recalls uh, much scripture in what she writes and what she sings. She's a woman who her response to the angelic message is passionate commitment and trust in God. My prayer for us this morning is that we might hear the message that Mary has for us in helping us understand who God is and the love of God expressed perfectly in Jesus and that we might similarly, similarly respond with godly passion. So I want to read to you the words of Mary's song. And this is one of the most intimate passages in all of Scripture. I wonder for this morning if we might stand together for the reading of God's Word. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Our God and Father, this morning, as we consider the words that Mary articulated somehow to Luke, God, would we hear from you by your Holy Spirit into the places and situations in which we find ourselves? Would we know you and your love more through our study of this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Mary, as we've always already alluded to, is a woman of the Word. Mary is a woman of the Word of God. Mary, most scholars will say, quotes up to 11 passages of Old Testament Scripture in writing her song, none more uh, significantly than 1 Samuel chapter 1, the song of Hannah. Hannah, if you remember the story, is, pleads with God to provide her with a son, which she promises to give back to the Lord. And God gives her that son as she writes this beautiful song. 
Mary echoes that song in her own. But Mary also quotes the Psalms. She quotes Genesis and Exodus and Habakkuk. Mary is a woman of the word. Now, it's very common at this time for young boys, particularly those studying under a rabbi, to have memorized huge swaths of, of Scripture, including the entire Torah. But here is a young woman who knows the Word intimately. You know, I'm pleased to say that Groton Bible Chapel is a church that is filled with women and men who know the Word. And that the Bible is critically important to the DNA of our existence here. So much so that we've joked that the Bible is our middle name. Those of you who have been here for more than a couple years, you know that right underneath my feet, wrapped in plastic in the very concrete foundation of this building, is a copy of the Word of God. And symbolically, we stand on the Word of God. Mary's a woman of the Word. Structurally, this song that she writes, Mary's Magnificat, divides neatly into four, what in the Greek we'd call strophes. We'll use a more contemporary English word, stanza. Mary writes four stanzas, and the first stanza is a foundational statement, a, a gushing of her beliefs in God and her faith in Him. And then the three subsequent stanzas address fears that lay before her that I suspect are similar in every time. Fear of oppression, injustice, and neglect, even divine neglect. That Mary addresses and roots in her foundational, fundamental faith in God. So let's look at this first stanza. Mary said, my soul glorifies, magnifies, praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. In the first stanza, Mary praises God for what he's done for her. And note that Mary's response, while it's, it's sure to be that there's some apprehension and some trepidation, that what flows out of her is rejoicing that she is called uniquely to bring Messiah to the world. Mary rejoices. She recognizes her humble state before the Lord. She knows that her calling is unique, unique in all of human history. But the key phrase in this first stanza of Mary is this, that she rejoices in what she calls God my Savior. Mary understands her own need for a Savior. By the way, this is where Catholic and Protestant theology will, will branch apart a little bit here. Because Mary understands that her acceptable, uh, being acceptable before the Lord is not based on her own intrinsic qualities or her external behavior, but that she too needs a Savior. And she roots the rest of this song in the fact that God is, in fact, her Savior. Now, certainly she knows that her calling is unique and special. She says, from now on, all generations, including us this morning as we've studied and sung, will call me blessed. But her joy is found in God, her Savior. And it begs the question of you and me this morning. Do I understand that I need a Savior? If Mary, who is uniquely, specifically, and specially called in all of human history to bring the Messiah into the world needs a Savior, then surely I do as well. Maybe this morning you come to church and you've never considered the fact that apart from the love of a holy God, you stand afar off from him. Paul says that we are condemned already under the judgment of God. Mary pushes us to consider, do I understand that I need a Savior? The rest of her Magnificat, then, is a passionate expression of her trust in that God, in God, her Savior. She continues in the second stanza, 
the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary in the second stanza glorifies God for his power and holiness and his mercy. In a very real way, she balances those things. God's power and holiness and his mercy. Certainly we see that most clearly balanced in the cross itself, but we'll get to that. The word mercy here is a word that we heard read over and over again in our Advent reading this morning. It's the Greek word elios. It's the New Testament equivalent of that most magnificent of Hebrew words, hesed. It's the faithful love, loyal love, loving kindness, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping love of God that reaches its apex in God's encounter with Moses in Exodus 34, where he defines his own nature, essence, and, ca and character by saying that he is a faithful, loyal, loving, promise-keeping God. That is what defines him. And here in Luke's Gospel, the Greek equivalent of that word is what Mary anchors herself to. It's what balances God's holiness and his power such that the Mighty One has done wonderful things for me. She says, holy is his name, his mercy. And so Mary knows that she is delivered from the fear of oppression. We began with Mary as an oppressed person in an oppressed people. But she is delivered from the fear of oppression. She understands definitively that God is able to save her. Not only does she know that she needs a Savior, but she knows that God is capable, that he is able to save her. Mary directs us to the love of God despite isolating circumstances, oppressive circumstances, to say that God is able to deliver you. You know, if ever there's been a season in our lives where we felt the nature of isolating and oppressive circumstances, it's been the last 20 or so months. I don't know what that's been like for you. I don't know what those moments of isolation are, the things that have been thrust upon you or the ones that you've chosen. But as you consider this morning your need for a Savior, Mary would say to you, He is able to save you, even from the oppression of your own sin. So this morning, do I trust that He is able? You know, it may be that God has you in the circumstances He has you in to help you see your need to, for a Savior, to help you to trust that he is able to save you. I would dare say that God delights. He delights, if we follow the full counsel of Scripture and even human history, he delights in putting his people in situations and circumstances where the only way out is that they look up. We've been studying the book of Judges, many of us here at GBC this this fall, and we sort of uh, shut our time off for the, you know, through the holidays with the studying Gideon. Gideon, if you, if you consider the numbers, Gideon faces the Midianite army of about 120,000 soldiers with 32,000 soldiers, under 30%. Those are not good odds for, for Gideon to be able to defeat Midian. And yet what does God do? He pairs that number down to 300. Because God, as it says explicitly in the text, wants to be sure that Israel understands it is him and only him that is able to deliver them from the power of the Midianites. What are the circumstances of your life today where God is trying to get your attention, not in some way that is cruel, but that you would understand his love for you, his deep, abiding love for you? Well, that brings us to the next stanza. Mary says, 
He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Mary now speaks and sort of reflects on God's ability to reverse social conditions at will, according to his sovereignty. In the temporal, she's likely thinking of, of her own situation and her own culture and her own time. But it's true of every time that there's an essence to human culture where we sort of uh, predict or expect that those that are rich and powerful are going to perpetuate in their wealth and their power. While those who are poor and, and downtrodden are going to perpetuate in their poverty. If it's not explicitly in our culture, it certainly is in other parts of the world. But I think it's a condition of the human heart. Ask yourself this question. When you drive by that person on the side of the road with the sign and the little description, what's the first thought that goes through your mind? I'll speak for me alone. I wonder what they did to get themselves in that position. And Mary understands that she serves a God who not only uh, is Savior and is able, but a God who's in the big business of reversing uh, expectations and cultural situations. He's the God, as we said a few Easter's ago, a God of great reversals. And so Mary understands that she is delivered from a fear of injustice. God ultimately does what is right, such that he will eventually put everything that has gone wrong to right, somehow in his sovereignty, his power, and his holiness that she referenced earlier. And so Mary points us to God as Savior, who despite the injustices of the world we live in today, maybe the ones that you've experienced, maybe injustices due to race or culture, maybe injustices due to your life stage or situation or your economic status, that God will put those things to right. But that he does that principally by reversing the injustice of the sin that we deserve to be punished through the coming of the Messiah. So this morning, Mary's question to us, her third question is, do I trust that he is just? Do I understand my need for a Savior? Do I trust that God is able to save me? Do I trust that he is just? And note we don't use the word fair here. Zach spoke about this several months ago, that God may not be fair, but he is just. And so do I trust him above all else? Brings us to Mary's final stanza. And she says, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This last stanza recalls God's great mercy and invokes his promises to his people. Mary understands that she is uh, delivered from fear of God's neglect, ultimately that he cares that God cares, that this is a God who loves her. Mary directs us and points to God who is Savior despite relationships that might have failed us, maybe even in the last 20 months of the pandemic, maybe in the way that we thought people should have responded to the injustices and the social unrest of the last 20 months. Mary points beyond that to a God who is Savior, a God who says, yes, I see, and yes, I care, a God who loves you. And that's the biggest question of all. Do I trust that he actually cares? Mary says that as she reflects on this child growing within her, 
that the deliverance of God against the oppression and justice and neglect that we fear is deeply and profoundly and intimately personal. How? It comes in a little baby. Perhaps an illustration might help here. I, I mentioned that I listened to uh, Bob McCoy's message on this passage from the early 80s, and I'm going to steal his illustration. Ironically, Bob used to always say, the best teachers are thieves. So, Bob, here we go. <laughs> uh, but he tells this story of a little boy whose grandfather is getting him dressed. Grandpa's getting his little two-year-old grandson ready for the day. He puts on his little trousers and his socks, and he's putting his shirt on. And he says, boy, I really like this shirt. This is a great shirt. And the little boy's putting his arm into the sleeve of the shirt. He says, Grandpa, you really like my shirt? And the grandfather says, yeah, I really like this shirt. And the boy ponders for a moment, and he says, Grandpa, you can have it when you get little. <laughs> See, folks, God got little for you and me. In the person of Jesus, God got little and yet somehow remained God. And so salvation is not just from the Lord, Mary says. Salvation is the Lord. It is he himself, and he comes in love. It's how Isaiah can write one of the promises Mary is likely thinking of in Isaiah 16, that in love a throne will be established. In faithfulness a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging judges justly, one who speeds the cause of righteousness. In love a throne will be established. He cares. Or in Malachi 3.1, uh, Malachi near the very end of the Old Testament gives us this huge clue about what God's talking about in this messianic deliverance. He says this, he says, See, I will send my messenger, speaking of John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, before me. God drops this huge truth bomb that it is he himself who is going to come to redeem his people. You see, in the gospel, we have the fact that God got little for you and me, that he would live the life that we could not live, fulfilling not just all the imagery of the Old Testament, but the very law itself where we could not possibly obey. And then he would grow and he would go to a Roman cross where he would suffer the death that we deserve, absorbing the full wrath and punishment of God Almighty in our behalf, that we can know forgiveness, freedom, and eternal life. And so the reverse question for you and me this morning is this. Have I, like Mary, got little to receive that I need a Savior, that he is able to save me, that he is just, he does what is right, and that he loves me. Have you got little this Advent season? I want to invite the band to come up as they prepare to lead us in a final song and just kind of leave that question with you before we wrap up here this morning. My last question for you today, as the band comes, I think, <laughs> is what is your Magnificat? Two of the greatest composers in human history, Johann Sebastian Bach and Wolfgang Mozart, composed pieces of music that were inspired by and contained the words of Mary's Magnificat. So to those of you who are creatives in the room, write a, write a song, write a poem, reflect, reflecting on the greatness of God, your Savior. But metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, what is the composition 
of my life that sings of the great glories of God in heaven and his salvation to me? How does my life sing to, to the glory of God? I want to read you the words written by Charles Wesley, just the first verse of my favorite Christmas carol. And then we're going to sing a different song that echoes the words of Mary's Magnificat. But Wesley writes, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, we talked about that, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Pray with me. God, this morning we've sought to learn from your servant Mary much of who you are, that you are a loving Savior who is able, who is just, and who cares enough to send your son to die for us. Would you help our lives to sing for you, O God? We pray in Jesus' name.